Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. All right, amen. Man, that is exciting. Hey, if you, uh, if you saw the baptisms tonight and, and you went, man, I, that's something I've not done and, and that's my next step, we'd love to talk to you. You can find me after the service and do that. Or maybe you've got a child or children that are wrestling with that and you've got questions. I'd love to, to have that conversation with you. We love to celebrate baptism. It points to Jesus and the work that he's done on our, on our behalf. Uh, you're going to notice today that I'm wearing a Horizon West kids shirt. I see a few others of you wearing them. Um, I'm going to make a shameless plug for our kids' ministry. We, uh, we had a chance on Wednesday of this past week, Wednesday night, to, to have a, a rally for our kids' volunteers. Uh, Pastor Heath at our John Young campus came and, and did some training. We played some games. By the way, Greg, that was well done. You're a sharpshooter, man. That was good. Um, so, hey, it, it's a fun team. In fact, all of our serving teams are, are fun. They build their own unique identities. And so in addition to connecting with the group, if you've not yet joined a serve team, we'd love to invite you to do that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let you talk to Austin about that or myself as well uh, on your way out. But we'd love to help you connect in that way. You know, what you saw today, today and tonight in baptism, uh, what we do with our kids' ministry and in the parking lot and all these different ways when we gather and when we're not together— All of this is what I would call kingdom work. It's the work that we do to to advance the kingdom of God in the world. And that's actually what I want to talk about today. We're going to be in our rebuild series again in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The the chapter is going to be chapter 3 and 4. If you've got a Bible, you can start turning there uh, while I'm talking. But uh, as we think about this idea of kingdom work, I want to give you a definition for it. And then we're going to see in the Nehemiah passage five principles of kingdom work that we can apply in our lives. This is how I would define kingdom work. Kingdom work is any activity that is initiated by God and leads to greater manifestations of the glory of God in the lives of people. We'll leave that up for just a second. My hope today is that you will see that kingdom work doesn't just happen in a church building. But instead, kingdom work is when you engage a neighbor or coworker in a gospel conversation. That's kingdom work. When you pray for God to move in your life or in the lives of other people, you're doing kingdom work. Parents, when you instruct a child biblically, when you correct a child biblically with love, you're doing kingdom work. And when you carry out your vocation in such a way that, that God is honored, that the needs of the poor are considered, that, that you, you work with integrity and, and ethics because you're a follower of Jesus, all of that is kingdom work. What, what I believe is kingdom work is something that God begins in the life of an individual believer, but it becomes most fully realized in the collective body of a local church. This is why I don't subscribe to the idea that some go, well, well I can just, you know, I can, I can do spiritual stuff on my own. I don't need to belong to a church, right? I can have a relationship with God outside of that. To which I would say, yeah, maybe you can have a relationship with God without a local church, but you cannot and will not fully realize the work of God in your life apart from a local church. It is what God has given us to to stimulate the kingdom work he's doing and all of the unique individuals and families that make up a local congregation. And like a 
wildfire when the spark here and the spark here and the spark here and all the sparks in the neighborhoods and workplaces and communities from which we come come together in worship of the person of Jesus in the preaching of the word man it's like a wildfire of the work of God in our lives so we're going to look at these five principles to, to bring you up to speed and by the way I just want to say what a great thing it was to have Austin preach last weekend and, and to, to do a, a phenomenal job in Nehemiah chapter 2. You're going to see more of him, but in case you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, I want to catch you up on where we are. The book of Nehemiah tells the story of a man who was serving the king of Persia. The Persian Empire had basically taken over the known world. Nehemiah is a Jewish man living in exile almost a thousand miles away in the capital of Susa. And he has gained permission from the king to travel back to his hometown of Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall of the city. Now, now the wall uh, doesn't really mean what it would mean to us in our day, maybe. The wall in Jerusalem was their identity. It, it was the sign of God's faithfulness and favor over them. For the wall to be broken down as it was uh, was basically a sign to the nations that, hey, maybe God isn't really for these Jewish people. And Nehemiah said that can't be. He got permission to go back to rebuild this wall. So Nehemiah 1 and 2 kind of lays the groundwork, and Nehemiah 3, where we'll be tonight, is really going to kick off the construction project. Now, before we drop into this uh, story, let me make an important uh, distinction, an important point here. For Nehemiah, kingdom work involved rebuilding the physical wall. And it was for the purpose of restoring the national identity of the Jewish people. Our kingdom work is very different. Our kingdom work involves rebuilding of spiritual and relational bridges for the purpose of introducing people to the good news of salvation through Jesus. So don't get too hung up in the context going, man, what does a guy building a wall in Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago have to do with me? These principles that were true in Nehemiah's day are also true in our day as we seek to do the kingdom work that God has called us to in our, in our lives. So Nehemiah chapter three, you can follow along with me here, starting at verse one. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazak, repaired. And next to them, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazabel. You're glad you're not up here reading these names. <laughs> also repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And God forgive me if I've butchered those guys' names. I don't think they care. So, what in the world does that, those verses have to tell you, you, you? Typically, when you're preparing to speak to people, you, you take a block of verses that make a point, and then you, you kind of read those, and then you go to the next. And you're going, what, what is it with all these names that could possibly be a principle for kingdom work? Here it is. Kingdom work attracts kingdom people. Did you notice a repetitive refrain in those verses? There was a phrase that was repeated several times in just those first four verses. It was this, next to them or next to him. What does that mean? 
it means that though the vision began with Nehemiah, it would not end with him. When Nehemiah got set to do the work God had called him to do, it was contagious. It attracted kingdom people to come and stand beside him and next to them others and next to them others. Kind of the way that Norel's faith lit a fire in her sons and her daughter because kingdom work attracts kingdom people. We know almost nothing about these individuals. Nothing about the tribes that are mentioned here. But what we know is that they were inspired by a vision that was bigger than themselves and bordered on the impossible. Heard a story, I think it's anecdotal, I don't think it's a true story, and my apologies to those of you that are in branches of military that this joke kind of uh, is directed toward, but you'll, you'll just stay with me for a minute. Caleb, I'm especially thinking of you, don't, don't hurt me after this. The story is told of a military recruitment effort that was done at a local high school for seniors as they prepared to graduate and each of the military recruiters from the four major branches were given five minutes to speak. Well, first up came the Air Force and thinking that they were better than the others, they took eight minutes. Next up was the Navy and they only took six. Next up was Army, they took their five but 19 of the 20 minutes had been used and it left only one minute for the Marine recruiter. The Army, Air Force, and Navy recruiters had gone on and on about the benefits of joining their branches and the retirement and the, the finances and all the things they would get to see around the world. And with one minute to spare, the Marine recruiter stood, stood up and said to these high school students, very few of you have what it takes to be a Marine. If you survive boot camp, you'll be placed on the front lines of battle and many of you will not make it home. If you think you have what it takes, see me in the lobby. And as soon as it ended, <laughs> guess whose line was out the door, right? Why? Because people want to be called up. They want to be called out. They don't, they're not attracted to small vision. John Maxwell once said, if you, have, if you want a million dollars, have a million, dollar, a million dollar vision. No one's going to give you a million dollars to paint the walls. A lot of churches, and, and I've been in these meetings where, well, if, it, you know, if we can just get every family in the church to give 10% more, we can pay off the mortgage. Very few people are excited about paying off mortgages. And I can remember being a student pastor and going, if you would just get me one family to give $500, I could get some resources to do ministry among students. Like, I, I've got a vision, like, release me to do it. And Nehemiah had a vision from the Lord that went beyond what he could accomplish. It bordered on the impossible. And the next thing you know, there's men and women lined up next to him to do the work. Kingdom work attracts kingdom people. I want to talk about one very, sm uh, not small, but, but only one part. It's a significant part of the kingdom vision God has given us, among others. I want to talk about just one. Part of the kingdom work that God has called us to at Horizon West Church is to build a diverse community of good friends. It's kind of the first part of the vision statement that we talk about. A diverse community of good friends. Earlier this week, I was in the car with my two girls, Addison and Olivia, and we were going to school, and, and I don't remember how the conversation came up. It might have been MLK Day and, and the week that we were having and that kind of thing, and we began talking about different people that are in churches with us and, and people that speak different languages and how incredible that is. And, 
My daughter, Olivia, she asked me this question. She said, Dad, are there churches where it's all just white people or all just black people? This is uncomfortable, right? I said, yeah, there are. She couldn't believe it. She's like, are you kidding? I said, no. I said, I grew up in a church like that. She asked this, she said, Dad, are there more churches that are all the same or more churches that have different people together? How would you answer that question to a seven-year-old? I I thought I knew, but to be sure, I looked it up. Uh, Look at this graphic with me. This was done by Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist part of our denomination. This number here, and you can't read this, so I'll read it for you. 85% of senior pastors of Protestant churches say that every church should strive for racial diversity, right? Not sure what's going on with the other 15%, but at least we got 85, okay? But look down here, dream versus reality. Oh, look over here, rather. 13% of senior pastors of Protestant churches say they have more than one predominant racial or ethnic group in their congregation. So they say, yeah, it's super important that we strive for diversity, but we don't really have it here. Look down here. 78% of Americans say every church should strive for racial diversity. 51% of Americans say they would be most comfortable visiting a church where multiple ethnicities are well represented. Friends, this is an indictment. The church has lagged behind culture in embracing the beautiful diversity for which we were created. And look, I'm not looking to to do some trendy thing to attract people, but we're trying to reach people with the gospel. And there's people that are saying, I'm not doing church because all you care about is people that look like you and have a lot of money. Kingdom work attracts people that are into God's kingdom. People that have a desire to see the kingdom of God flourish in the world. And I believe in the days ahead, especially with increasing measure, kingdom people are going to be drawn toward churches that reflect the kingdom of God through multiple nations, languages, and ethnic groups. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of what Jesus desired when he told the disciples to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. This is what it says in Revelation 7. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I just want to see us get started here, right? I I, I want us to start manifesting this kingdom work, this revelation picture of the world unified at the feet of Jesus and to see it here in our own space, in our own community. Go back to the scripture, Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 5. Nehemiah 3 5 says this, Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Leave that up for just a second. Does that strike anybody some kind of way? (laughs) Would not stoop to serve the Lord. Here's the second principle of kingdom work. Kingdom work is servanthood. Kingdom work is servanthood. These particular individuals that Nehemiah is indicting were men that wanted the perks of leadership without the pains of leadership. That they enjoyed having influence, they they enjoyed having people listening to them and following them and getting the benefits of leadership, but here's what happened. 
because they weren't willing to do the work of leadership, to be servants, their tribe stopped following them and started following a man named Nehemiah who had a vision and the humility to carry it out. See, when we think leadership is about privilege and gaining something, we lose influence. And influence is leadership. The kingdom work is servanthood. I don't know who said it, but someone once said, if serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. In fact, in the Christian community, in the Christian ethos, leadership is servanthood. They're synonymous. They're the same thing. To serve is to lead and to lead is to serve. Jesus unpacked this for the disciples once as they were on a part of their journey and they were walking along road and guess what the disciples are doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest among them. Look at what Mark records for us. Mark 9, 33. So when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I love this. But they kept silent for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now notice here that Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for their motivation of being great. He rebukes them for their method of attaining it. Jesus does not say to the disciples, hey disciples, you should seek to be like nothing, to, to be nobodies. He says, if greatness is what you aspire to, and by the way, it seems like that's okay, I'm going to introduce a new way to achieve greatness. It's not the way the world tells you. They might clap, they might pat you on the back, but if you want to be great in my kingdom, kingdom work is servanthood. Those who are last become first. I want to tell you some examples of, of greatness in our church. It's not what you see up here. It's the ones who serve in the parking lot and make sure that everyone who arrives at our campus finds a space where they can come and worship the Lord. It's the ones who hold a door open and make people feel welcome as they walk in. It's the ones in the back who are changing diapers and leading songs and breaking up fights among our children. It's the ones setting up the stage and connecting cables and pushing buttons. And yes, that's how untechnical I am, pushing buttons. I don't know what you guys do, but I'm grateful for it. It's the ones who unload the truck before the service, before most others are here. It's the ones who load it back up when most have left. That's where greatness is in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you want to be great, strive to serve. Be a servant of all because leadership is servanthood. The kingdom of God is servanthood. I want you to notice one other thing about this group of people, these Tekoite nobles, as, as Nehemiah mentions them. It fascinates me that in this recorded scripture, which has persevered now for more than 2,000 years, a whole bunch of guys whose names I can't pronounce got their names inscribed in the Bible. But the ones who led them, they're just footnotes. It's a passing reference. Ah, but there was this one group. They thought that it was beneath them to serve the Lord. It's all you need to know. We're moving on, right? Kingdom work is going to attract kingdom people who are willing and ready to serve the Lord, not looking for accolades, not looking for appreciation or, or, or respect or whatever it may be, but their reward is in heaven. And they say, Lord, I just want to serve you. I just want to serve your people. We're not going to read the rest of chapter three because I don't want to stumble through more names, but here's what you need to see here. 
Throughout chapter three, we're gonna see the names of people and tribes that are doing the work, and we're gonna see parts of the wall that are beginning to be repaired. It's just the beginning in chapter three. But one commentary that I found said that there are 45 sections of the construction project that are mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, 45 different sections. So this is like the pre-runner to I-4, right? Uh, David made a joke, but uh, our, our senior pastor, David Youth, made a joke last week, but I shouldn't say this and try to take credit, but I gave him the joke, so I'm going to use it. I, I said, look, we're looking at the content together. I said, man, I wish we had these guys on the I-4 project. And we all laughed, and then David stole my joke. So I just wanted to own that. I know I'm supposed to be a servant, but I want to own that right there. So without reading the rest of chapter 3, here's just what I want you to know about it. Kingdom work requires organization. Kingdom work requires organization. If we were to go to the book of Acts, which we're not going to do tonight, but if you were to look in Acts chapters 1 and 2, and even 3 and 4 especially, what we see is the birth of the church. It's the first generation of followers of Jesus. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He has poured out the Holy Spirit on his followers at what we call Pentecost. Tongues of fire rest on them. They become proclaimers of the gospel. People are saved. They start going, well, where are we going to gather? Well, I guess we can meet at the temple and we'll have people in homes and we're going to eat together. And, and then some people were like, man, there's people that, that don't have enough food for their families and they're selling land and giving the money away. And like, it's, it's beautiful, it's organic, it's spontaneous. And then chapter six happens. And in chapter six of Acts, we see that a group of widows in the church were being overlooked in the distribution of food. This beautiful, spontaneous, borderline hippie community of followers of Jesus realized we've got a problem. We, we need to organize. And did you know that this is where deacon ministry was birthed? They said, time out. We need some people who have administrative gifting, organizational, organizational gifting, to, to dot the I's, cross the T's. We, we can't allow for people to be overlooked whose needs go unmet. And they began to organize. And then it just continued all the way to chapter 15 where they're calling their first council. And they're working through tough theological issues. The church began to change. It, it was organic, but it was also an organization and it needed organization to continue to work. Here's what I want you to know. Although kingdom work begins with vision, it cannot be completed without organization. It begins with vision, doesn't start with organization. Nehemiah didn't go, man, you know what would be a lot of fun? 45 construction projects all at once, right? Like the, it started with vision. The walls can't be broken down. God's people can't be uh, in derision. We, we, we got to do something. But after vision came organization. Now, here's my confession. I am not a good organizer, right? And, and fortunately, in the Bible, we see some leaders who are great organizers like Nehemiah. We see others who are lousy organizers like Moses. God uses us all, thankfully. Moses needed his father-in-law to come along and say, hey, Moses, break up the people into groups of 50 and appoint people to oversee them. You're, you're not, this is out of your control. You're not handling this well. Great man of God, great leader, but he needed people. He needed a communications department named Aaron. He needed an organization or administration department named her. And so God began to take the vision he gave to Moses and to put around him organizers. God did the same with Nehemiah, though he was a master organizer, to bring others who could help to organize and administrate the work God had called them to. I praise God for organized people in my life. 
Nikki is more organized than me. That's why I'm wearing shoes tonight, I guess, right? That's why the kids got their hair brushed. On our team, Marcy and Justin are great organizers. I, I can go into a meeting and go, I'd like to see like these 35 things happen. And all of a sudden they're dates and there's people running point and there's follow-up and there's communication, right? Because vision, if it's going to be maximized, needs organization to get done. Now, some of you gravitate to organization and, and you go, oh, I'm all about that. Like, just give me the organization. So here's what I need you to hear. Organization is a support to kingdom work, but it is not a substitute for it. My hunch is that in most, more churches, it's the problem the other way, right? They got their committees and their teams and everything's organized. They got everything worked out, the finances and the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, but the fire of God is just not there, Right? show up and they, da, 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 they do all the things and they clap and they go and but the fire of God's got to be there and when the vision of God comes to the people of God and they get organized together and the giftings start to emerge of the the different parts of the body and everybody's doing their part kingdom work can be maximized it requires organization here's the fourth principle kingdom work invites opposition kingdom work invites opposition I'm going to jump ahead to Nehemiah chapter 4 here's these first three verses, Nehemiah chapter four. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He also said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Opposition. The kingdom of God always is met by opposition, right? And there's a simple reason for it. The Bible teaches that, that there is God and there is an enemy of God, sometimes called Satan or the devil. Uh, someone once said that the devil's greatest strategy is to stay in the background, to remain invisible, to make people think he doesn't exist, but he does. And every time the kingdom of God advances, it finds opposition, pushback, right? And so when we begin to do kingdom work, we will invite opposition. This doesn't mean we go looking for it. I'm talking about a natural law. When we do kingdom work, we invite opposition. In fact, you need to know that the opposition began before they even started building the wall. At the end of chapter two, we see these same guys show up and they just start peppering them. Man, you guys can't do it. This can't get built. You're not strong enough. Even if you finish, the outcome's not gonna be what you think it is. It's not gonna survive. Some of you have been in that place. For some of you, that's your own headspace. You don't have what it takes. You'll never get it done. This marriage is never gonna survive. You'll never, those kids will never live this out in their life. Your church will never, and, and this plays over and over and over again. You need to know that that opposition's coming from somewhere. It's not thoughts you're just dreaming up. You have an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy your soul. And you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that, that when you start doing kingdom work, opposition doesn't decrease, it increases. And Nehemiah was prepared for that increase in opposition. Notice that it begins with outsiders. Guys who aren't part of the, the Jewish community, right? Tobiah and Sambalat by name. And they're questioning the ability and the condition and the outcome. But eventually it becomes inside opposition. And that's when it gets tough. 
Look at Nehemiah 4.10, just a few verses down. In Judah, now Judah is where the Jewish people are living, right? In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. Now, I don't think that these guys were intentionally trying to discourage, but here's what happens. When the people of God don't rally to the work of God, it discourages the ones who are doing it. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, it is not the critic who counts, right? It's easy to stand by and see the people doing the work and go, yeah, it's never going to get done. And we don't have the time or the strength or the energy. It started as outside opposition, but eventually it became inside opposition. And here's the truth. The ease of the work is no indication of the favor of God. The ease of the work is no indication of the favor of God. For much of my life, I have assumed wrongly that if God's called me to do something, the dominoes are just going to fall pretty easily, right? And if I hit opposition, I go, okay, God, you must not have been moving. And I've learned, man, when I hit opposition, oftentimes that's an indication that God is moving. This has actually become incredibly encouraging for me. Nehemiah and the Jews faced enormous obstacles because they were doing kingdom work, not in spite of it. And almost everything worth doing is hard. So let me make this really practical. Husband, wife, a difficult marriage does not mean you married the wrong person. Challenges at work are not indication necessarily that it's time to leave. Opposition and discouragement are not evidence that you're doing it wrong. Sometimes you're facing opposition because you're doing it right. And if that, if you need more evidence, let me just go straight to Jesus. The one who accomplished the greatest kingdom work there could ever be faced the greatest opposition there has ever been. And he did not say, man, if I was really the Messiah, this would be easier, right? In fact, at one point, Peter said, Jesus, time out, stop talking about suffering. We'll never let you suffer. You're the Christ. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God. You're thinking like man. Man thinks that Messiahs don't suffer. Jesus knew the Messiah was called to suffer. Jesus knew that kingdom work invites opposition. So it is possible to face fierce opposition and yet to prosper at the same time. Here's the fifth and final principle. Kingdom work relies fully on God. Look at verses four and five of Nehemiah chapter four. This is Nehemiah's response to the opposition. Here's what he says. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, Nehemiah is like not taking this well, right? He's, he's not exactly like just rolling over. But notice who he says that they've provoked. Not Nehemiah. He says, they've provoked you, God. Th- these people are opposing you. And guess what? When people oppose God, that's a failed mission. It's the same reason that David could step in front of a giant named Goliath and say, you have defied the armies of the living God. Your fight's not with me. I'm a kid with a stone and a sling, but when you started defying God, your fate was sealed, Goliath. And when this opposition came against Nehemiah, here's what he did. He relied on God. 
he turned to the Lord. This is going to be a recurring theme in all of the chapters of Nehemiah, that whenever he faces opposition or obstacles, his immediate posture is to turn to God. Do you remember last week, if you were here, Austin talked about this idea that, that Nehemiah began to pray as soon as he heard the bad news in Jerusalem. He began to pray. And those days of prayer, Austin said, turned into months of prayer. And those months of prayer turned into a moment of prayer. Because Nehemiah had so saturated himself in reliance on God, when the king asked him the pointed question of why are you upset, he was ready. He prayed and he immediately answered. Truthfully, my response is often very different. For me, it often takes a very, very long time for me to get to prayer. My first resort is usually anxious thoughts. My second resort is complaining. <laughs> my third resort is trying to fight my way out of it or work my way through it. And then when all that fails, I go, man, God, maybe I need some help, right? Nehemiah went straight to the prayer. Nehemiah knew to fully rely on God. He did it time and time again. We, we won't go there, but verses seven to nine, uh, more opposition comes and Nehemiah responds with these words, so we prayed to our God. Nehemiah 4.14, the people are becoming discouraged and he says to them, remember the Lord. Nehemiah knew that kingdom work relies fully on God. Nehemiah was fully convinced that God had called him to kingdom work and that because God was in the work, it could not and it would not fail. I want to encourage you with something as we close. Some of you maybe don't realize that the work you're doing is kingdom work. Maybe that's the, the challenge right there. You go, man, I don't know, Chris. I'm just raising kids. You kidding me? That's kingdom work. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just in boardrooms trying to make decisions for our company. Right. And that company is going to be a force for good or potentially evil. And the decisions made in that room matter. I'm just a cashier. I'm just a, an IT guy. I'm just whatever it is. Yes. And if you go into it sent by God, to do gospel ministry, to look for opportunities to meet needs, to pray for people, to sow seeds of the gospel, you're doing kingdom work. Others of you, maybe you're aware, yeah, God's called me to this and I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but man, I just don't see how it's gonna succeed. And I would tell you this, if God is in the work, it cannot and it will not fail. God is with you, he is for you. When we were starting Horizon West Church two and a half years ago now, God gave me a verse, and I, and I want to close with, with this verse. I wasn't reading church planting books. I, I wasn't, you know, watching, you know, videos on how to plant successful churches. God gave me a verse in Psalms of all places, Psalm 127, verse 1. This was the, God, the, the verse that God gave me for our church. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Because here's the flip side of that. Here's what this verse implies. But if the Lord does build the house, if the Lord is watching over the work, it cannot and will not fail. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.